he, he wrote this. The children now love luxury, comfort. They have bad manners. They show contempt for authority. They show disrespect for older people. They prefer to talk instead of work. Children are now liabilities, not assets to their households. They no longer stand up when older people enter the room. They contradict their parents. They talk too much. They tyrannize their teachers. Kind of harsh. Sound familiar? Socrates, written about 450 years before Christ was born. Cultural implosion has been going on for a long time. And there's a reason for that. And there is a reason why, when we look back to the 5th century before Christ, that we see some of the identical cultural problems that we are seeing 21 centuries after Christ. There's a reason for this. And the Apostle Paul addresses it in the first chapter of the book of Romans. There there is no more profound or succinct statement on the doctrine of humanism than you're going to find in Romans chapter 1. And so the Apostle Paul, when he is writing to Christians who are living in the pagan Greco-Roman culture of the first century world. They are in the very citadel of the evil, wicked, immoral, and ungodly Roman emperors who are setting, they are setting the margins for the Roman people in their behaviors. It is no wonder that Paul is going to address things that sound remarkably modern, contemporary. Sounds like he's talking about the United States of America in the 21st century. And so he said... 
I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. You underline things in your Bible, I want you to underline that. Paul said, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also. Then he said in verse 16, the verse that we know, that we quote very often without considering the context into which it falls. Paul said, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Very often we we quote that verse. It's a great verse. Our children learn that verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. What is the gospel? The gospel, ladies and gentlemen, is the good news. In its original form, the the root of the word gospel had to do with the messenger himself. Later, by metonymy, it came to be used for the message that the messenger was bearing. The gospel, the good news, the good news about Jesus Christ. And, And this word faith... Paul said, for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith unto faith. What is faith? Everybody today talks about faith. Few, Few of us really grasp the concept of faith. Faith is believing something enough to act on it. It's trusting God enough to do what he says. And so Paul in Romans is going to he's going to put these literary markers both at the beginning and the end as he talks about faith. He doesn't leave us to wonder what he's talking about. He's go, he is talking about faith in the context of the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. As he indicates in verse number 5, if you see that, you can mark that in your text. The grace and the apostleship that was brought about through Jesus Christ our Lord about the obedience of faith. Interestingly enough, when he closes the epistle, he is going to use the same expression again. In Romans chapter 16, the obedience of the faith. Faith is trusting. Somebody says, well, you know, we we talk about faith, we think about believing and say, you just got to have faith, brother. You just got to believe. What does that mean? You got to have faith. You got to believe. I can believe certain things, but I don't necessarily act on that. 
How, how many of us believe? How many of us believe that it's a good idea to get up at a regular time every morning and exercise for 15 or 20 minutes? How many of us believe that? And how many of us believe that it's a good idea if we all eat a healthy diet? How many of us believe that? And how many of us believe that we ought to have a regular discipline of prayer and scripture reading every day? How many of us believe that? How many of us do those three things every day? Belief and faith. And what I'm saying to you is the faith that Paul is talking about is not just, oh, you know, got to have faith, got to have faith, just just believe. It's not just believe. The faith that Paul is talking about is an obedient faith. It is believing God enough that we're compelled to do what he says. The good news of the gospel is that God has provided my salvation through Jesus Christ. That's the good news. What he's asking of me is faith. He's asking of me to trust him enough to obey him, to follow him, to listen to him, to stay with him. That's what he's asking. And so he says in verse 18, because, here's why this is so important. Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Two things I want to call your attention to immediately. Number one, the verb. The Apostle Paul is not saying, The wrath of God is going to be revealed one day against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He doesn't say the wrath of God will be revealed. Actually, it's in the present perfect tense. What he says was, it's not unlike what he's, the same verb issue that you have in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. What he says is, For the wrath of God is being revealed. Is being revealed. Right now, presently, the wrath of God is revealed. It is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And if you are marking your text You want to circle the word all. It's very important. Because God's wrath against ungodliness and unrighteousness is not just against some of it. It's not just God's wrath against those nasty people out there. It's God's wrath being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 
Men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. Do you get that? It is plain to them because God made it plain to them. What can be known about God has been made plain. Ladies and gentlemen, what he is saying is, you see it in verse 20, there's no excuse. There's no excuse. He said, what can be known about God is plain to them. God has made it plain to them. He's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and all the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. There there is no excuse for not knowing God. Why is that? Because God has made it plain. He's made it plain. He has clearly revealed himself to them. So what's the problem? The problem is, in verse 21... For although they knew God, isn't that interesting? Paul said the truth is, they did know him. You know why? Because it was plain. It's like the nose on their face. It was plain. It was undeniable. It was right in front of them. The creation that is expressing the power, the divinity of God. It's plain. For although they knew God, listen, they did not honor Him as God. Nor did they give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What happened? What happened is, Paul said, even though God had plainly, clearly revealed himself to this world, and even though truth be known, they saw it. The fact of the matter is, Paul said, they made a choice. Although they knew God, they made the choice not to glorify him as God, nor to give thanks to him. You want to know how a culture implodes? First step, it's the deliberate choice not to see what we see regarding God. The first first step in the cultural implosion is the deliberate choice that is made to deny the obvious, to deny the obvious truth. 
the existence of God is the most clearly perceived truth of all creation. God wrote it into everything he made. I'll tell you something in that first step that ought to scare us to death. We see here from the pen of the Apostle Paul, we we see here a principle that is even at work today, and the principle is this. If we want nothing to do with God, if we want nothing to do with God, He will grant our wish. And ladies and gentlemen, that is the beginning of the true wrath of God. Be careful what you ask for. You don't want God in your life. You don't want God in your thinking. You don't want God in your country. You don't want God in your, in your uh, government. You don't want God in, in your community. You don't want God in your school. Be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask for. When is it? <laughs> when is it that we don't want someone in our life? Generally, when that person's getting in our way. In our way of having our own way. Don't you think it's about time for you to go to bed, young man? You got school tomorrow. Your curfew was 30 minutes ago. You're still here. Don't you think it's about time for you to get in bed? I'll be so glad when I don't have to live here in this house and hear hear that. When do we not want someone in our life? Well, when they're getting in the way of us doing what we want to do. Hey, kids, we're on the way to Disney World. Well, who wants to wish your parents away then? No way. As long as we're getting to do what we want to do, everything's fine. Let me tell you, as, as long as we're on the receiving end of the goodies of God, God is good. The problem that culture has with God is when God gets in the way and restrains us in areas where we do not want to be restrained. And listen to me. That makes God angry. It makes him angry, and he reveals his wrath. And you know what his wrath is? We don't want God restraining us anymore. We don't want God in our way. And God is just wrathful in response, in saying, as you wish. It's the deliberate choice to refuse to have God in our knowledge. And so, 
Verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. When we decide to ignore God, God allows us to make that choice. You know what? When, when we cease going after God, we're just puny enough in our thinking that we still have to go after something. We still have to look for something. We still have to ascribe worth and value to something because we've got that worship thing written into our DNA. wonder where that came from. And so every civilization of every generation worships something. And the Apostle Paul said, when they refuse to have God in their knowledge, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for these carved images, for these molten images, for these shaped images. Somebody says, well, you know, you're, you're talking about... Our culture implosion today, we don't sit around worshiping images. No, we don't worship carved images. We worship the images, mental and conceptual images of our mind. Those are the images we are worshiping. I don't like the God of the Bible because he constrains me. So I have said no to him. I will recreate a God more to my liking. And I'll tell you something interesting about the God I recreate. It happens all the time. Every time we create our own God, guess what? He agrees with me. He indulges me. He gives me permission in the very areas where God demanded restraint. In reality, ladies and gentlemen, we make ourselves God. We worship ourselves. We're, we're a culture that worships our own bodies, the human form. We worship our own intellect, our wisdom, our knowledge, our achievements. And we worship our passions and lusts. I make a God in my mind who amazingly approves of who I am and what I do. And when you come to me and say, hey, bro, you ought not to be doing that, hey, I've got peace about this. I get peace about this. What does that mean? All that means, all that means is that you approve 
of what you want to do. That's all that means. So it says, well, I'll tell you one thing. You know, there's a lot about the Bible I don't know, but I know this. I, I know the Bible says God wants me to be happy. You won't find that in the Bible, but I'll tell you what you will find. God wants you to be righteous. And God has said repeatedly in his word that righteousness is the key to happiness. And so, as we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. When we determined that we would no longer have God in our knowledge, God gave us up. You don't want me in your life? I'll show you my wrath. I'm going to step out of the way. Have it. He gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. God called for restraint. They were demanding tolerance. God gave them up to their own desires for sexual impurity. Sexual impurity. Underline that in your text and underline what it is. Sexual impurity is the degradation of the body with one another. That's what it is. Somebody said, well, you know, what he's talking about here is as you continue on, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise did the same thing. What? So what, what, what's going on here? So it says, well, this is the New Testament passage that deals with same-sex relationship. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the New Testament passage that deals with sexual impurity. Sexual impurity that is seen in its culmination, in its apex, in its last stages as it begins and it follows we begin when the marriage relationship is dishonored and adultery and immorality stains the marriage relationship. And then suddenly we become not only a people who have allowed the marriage covenant to be violated, but now divorce is being practiced. And men are not just being unfaithful to their wife, they are actually putting away their wives and taking other wives. Adultery was one thing, but now there is the total abandonment and exposure 
of the woman. And, and after that, then it seems, it, it seems even more convenient not to even marry. And cohabitation is accepted. And we're living in a culture where adultery is common and divorce is common. And now cohabitation is common. And, and then young people begin to imitate the behavior of older people. And, and, and young people are sexualized at younger and younger ages. And that seems to be their right to be so. And then finally we began running out of options in the satiation of lust and passions. And we turned to same sex and perversions of other kinds. At the apex and the final. What, what, what is going on here? This is what happens with unbridled self-indulgence in the passions of the flesh. There's a reason why God called for restraint. You refuse to have God in your knowledge. God's going to give you what you want. We, we think. Here are the, those red letter sins. These are the terrible things. Unbridled self-indulgence. But let me tell you something. Paul doesn't stop right here. He goes on to talk about not just the unbridled self-indulgence. He talks about relationship destruction. They have become filled. Yes, he, he talked about sexual impurity, but li- listen to this. He goes on to say, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness and greed and depravity. Every kind. You're reading. The text says, That because of their refusal to have God in their knowledge, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And then he said in verse 28, furthermore, because they didn't think it was worthwhile to have the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to their depraved minds. And it's not just their sexual lives that are messed up and perverted at this point. It's not just their sexual lives. But now every relationship in their life is being affected. Affected by what? By wickedness, selfishness, greed, depravity. The problem of malice, the problem of gossip, the problem of slander, the problem of arrogance and pride, and, and the problem of disrespect for authority in, in the home. No love, no grace, no mercy. Relationships cannot exist like this. Not between a husband and wife. Not between parents and children. Not between uh, friends with other friends in the, in the society, not between brothers and brothers in the community of faith. It cannot exist like this. And finally, Paul said, here's what it comes to. Here, here's the end of all of this. 
Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Listen. God's wrath is being revealed against those who are actively participating in ungodliness. Yes, that's true. And God's wrath is being revealed against those who are quietly consenting and quietly cheering the ungodly, even if they do it only in their hearts. Now I want you to go back to verse number 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. You circle again that word, all. Because when Paul gives the description of the culture that has imploded, It's not just a problem of a few marginal sexual indiscretions that have taken place. He is talking about a people who have willfully shoved God out of the equation. He's talking about a people who no longer consider God's will, God's word, God's way. And he's not just talking about sins of a moral nature. He's not just talking about the red-letter sins. He's talking about those green-letter sins, too. Like malice in the heart. Envy. Jealousy. Unforgiveness. He's talking about those, too. Because those are the very things, dishonesty, deceit, our our, our culture is being destroyed by that. We are the culture that has news piped into us 24-7 from every venue on the planet. And you don't know if you can believe one word you're hearing from anybody. What, What have we come to? What have we come to? But here's the danger. God's wrath is revealed not against only those people out there who are doing those red letter things that just disgust me. His wrath is being revealed against those things I'm quietly and secretly harboring in my own heart. That too. That too. And what we need to get is this. It is godliness that makes a nation great. And sin is a disgrace to any people. Present, country included. If this nation is going to be great, it will be because of godliness. And apart from godliness, ladies and gentlemen, it will not be great. 
not according to God. And I'm telling you that in a time when we are being encouraged to believe that what we desperately need, what's going to make the difference in our life and the life of our children and grandchildren and all, all posterity, to what's, what the ultimate thing here is that we need a new Caesar and we need new laws and we need new taxes and we need a new way and we need a new this and we need a new, new that. And what our culture desperately needs is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the power of God unto salvation. That is the theme of Romans chapter 1. And that is the answer to cultural implosion. And let's make sure as we get excited and get our passions worked up about the things that matter. The thing that matters in our own life, in our own family, in our own household, in faith, and in our own culture. The thing that matters is the knowledge of God that has been expressed in Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom we can say with Paul, we are chief. What a wonderful thing that this morning we come together to eat the bread and drink the cup and declare our oneness with Jesus Christ with full confidence that the life we live and the hope that sustains us has absolutely nothing to do with Tiberius Caesar. It has everything to do with Jesus if you're here this morning and not a Christian, we invite you to come in obedience to the gospel to give yourself to him in full allegiance.